Welcome to the City Beautiful Church podcast. Thank you for taking the time to join our family as we strive to live together in heavenly reality. For more great content, visit us online at citybeautiful.ch. Taking a, taking a music stand. Don't judge me. Hey guys and gals. Okay. Cool. Find your seats. Or don't. If you're a stander, it's all right by me. I'm going to lay on the floor. Cool with that too. Uh, good job. Way to go. A lot, of, a lot of people I don't know personally, which is weird for me. I feel like we've had some, some turnover. So uh, I'll give you a brief introduction. My name is Steve Wimmer. I'm one of the elders here, uh, which really, hi. It, it, I think it just means I actually am older than most of you at this point. Um, and then that like I care about this community and been around a while and I'm intentional in thinking and praying for it. Um, so my background, I spent 11 years or so in full-time ministry, two of them teaching high schoolers and having my soul slowly shriveled into like the creatures from The Little Mermaid. And then nine of them were full-time here as a missionary to UCF uh, through University Christian Fellowship. Unfortunately, or fortunately for my bank account, I am now a fully corporate shill, uh, and I exist in the world of big pharma. I, I promise I do. It's gross. Don't hate me. Um, but I still love Jesus, and, uh, and Ryan lets me speak sometimes because it's something I love to do, and occasionally it works out for all of us. So... Um, we are in the middle of a series, if you're new here, called Eureka, and our theme for the year is A River of Renewal Flowing from the Throne of God, and Eureka is a series about looking for God in the Old Testament through the lens of Christ, so looking for glimpses of our Messiah in some of these Old Testament stories, whether that's him, uh, sort of his pre-incarnate form revealed in a single episode, like when he wrestled with Jacob, or whether it's a, a typology, someone who represents an aspect of Jesus. So we've been through a lot of the biggies, a lot of the greats, got their rookie cards. Um, last week, Jenna, my wife, spoke about Moses, um, and this week I have Esther, uh, which I know everyone's like, ooh, we love Esther, which actually makes me feel weird because uh, I don't want to like mess up anyone's favorite story. So I'll just say like whatever you've heard about Esther in a sermon or like a book that you've read, that's probably right. You just keep going with that. If this like contradicts that, no problem. Maybe if it's extra and it fits in, we're good. Um, now what Jenna was tasked with doing, like a lot, Ryan gave us hard ones because some people had like short stories. It's like, oh, here's this story of one person doing one thing. Great. Uh, here's Moses, which is like a third of the Old Testament. Just pack it in. And I'm kind of like in this middle ground where I was like, mm, we could do a, like a story of Esther and like some verses, or what if we did the whole thing? Um, and so I, I waffled back and forth and finally, like probably later than I should have decided, like, let's just go for the whole thing. So we're going to tackle every last bit of Esther in a somewhat unconventional way. Um, I'm going to pray for us, and hopefully this thing will stay on the rails long enough for us to meet Jesus. <laughs> like, not, not like we're all going to die. Um, like, <laughs> oh no, it's already happened. Um, dear Lord, thank you uh, so much for this community that I love. Um,
Amen. That'll do. I don't know how to get it to stay there. But I, he didn't tell me that. I'm going to tuck it into my underwear. So uh, if you haven't uh, been around, when I, like I have a bit of a reputation, I just uh, am like an unbridled ball of emotion and I just cry a lot. Um, so here we go. This is going to be uh, a three-step process. We're going to tackle the book of Esther, all of it. Then we're going to rewind, and we're going to go through it again from a different lens, and then we're going to think about uh, how does this fit into our modern times since none of us are uh, exiled Israelites. I hope if you are, then I'm going to completely go over your head. Um, so this first bit, uh, I really just want to kind of do almost like a drunk history style of Esther, uh, mainly because it's easier for me, but also uh, I just feel like it's... It's a lot, and this will keep it, keep it light. So the only thing I ask is that when, uh, I'm going to go through the, the four main characters. Whenever you hear the name Haman, do you know what to do? Boo! Boo Haman. Uh, whenever you hear his name, Clem, give me a boo. Yeah, that's good. All right. Esther. little background because it's kind of weird. Um, we talk about these Old Testament stories, and... I think sometimes from up front, and, and especially in modern scholarship, it's like, well, they could be like just a story, like a myth. It, it, the principle is the thing that matters, um, and you can get that out of it, whether it's like allegorical or metaphorical or omnivorable. Um, but then also, like, what if they're true, and what if this is really like the history of the Israelite people? And so I think Esther is like that. There's a lot of modern scholars who are like, no, for sure, this is false, and then there's some people who, who think it's plausible, like it could be real. And I just want to say for sure that I'm, I'm kind of like over here, and I think that a lot of this stuff is true, not like a story. Um, or I guess it is a story that just happens to reflect reality. And you're not like dumb if you believe that, I promise. Like there's reasons to believe that stuff. If you're over here and you're like, well, it, it's kind of a story, but like the, the principle is true, that's fine too. We can all like hold hands and be in the same room together. So background on Esther, uh, it's happening in a time of Jewish exile. So, you know, last week we had them being delivered from Egypt. They wandered around the desert. They made it into the promised land. And then um, things didn't go according to plan. They wanted a king. God was like, well, first, how about some judges? And they were like, no, that was terrible. He gives them a king. The kings are terrible. Finally, they break down into northern and southern. And God says, I'm going to exile you now. You've just, you haven't. Uh, you haven't figured it out, you're going to be taken away by King Nebuchadnezzar. He takes them to a foreign land. So these are people who are God's called people, but they've been exiled out of the promised land, and they're living in Babylon, which is Persia. But Babylon sounds so much scarier. Um, so they're in Persia, the Persian Empire. And this letter is coming at a time after some of the Jews have returned back to the promised land to start rebuilding Jerusalem. Um, Esther is not one of them. She and some of her Jewish friends, brethren, countrymen, uh, 
they're all still back in the city of Susa in Persia. And that's where this letter is happening. So it's uh, after the time of the prophets. There's been some messianic expectations that have been set uh, after, you know, the Jews have been called, delivered from Egypt, and exiled. Some of them have gone back, some of them haven't. Here we go. Chapter 1. We've got four main characters. We've got the king. Standard king, has a lot of power, kind of a jerk. Um, later on, I'm going to make the case that he kind of represents God, even though he's kind of a jerk. Character number two, we've got Haman. That guy sucks, and I'll tell you why later. But all you need to know is he's basically second in command under this king. Uh, the king's name is something like Arnosaurus. Uh, I didn't even bother pronouncing it because I knew I was just going to go with the other word, which is Xerxes. Historically, he's known as Xerxes, a real person, in fact, which is one of the reasons I think there's plausibility to the idea that this is a historical letter and not uh, fanfic. So we got two more. There, thank you. I appreciate it. Um, <laughs> Two more characters. One is Mordecai, often named Mordecai the Jew. What a great nickname. How'd you come up with that? Well, long story. Um, Mordecai is just Mordecai the Jew. We don't really know a ton about him, a little bit about his lineage. He's a Benjamite from the tribe of Benjamin. And he is the cousin of Esther, who has no mother or no father. Shocking. Um, but that's what the text says. And he adopts Esther as his own and raises her like a daughter. And then we have Esther who is uh, attractive and that's pretty much all we know at the start of the story. Great, so here we are. I'm gonna try and get through the whole book in the next eight minutes. On your mark, get set, go. Chapter one, the king is married to Vashti. She's also really attractive. This king spits game, he's good. He's having a giant feast, 180-day feast, according to the text, which we think is probably a metaphorical number, not 180-day actual feast. I would love to be invited. He gets drunk, and he's like, Vashti, come here. I want to show my friends how hot you are. And she's like, I would not prefer that outcome. And he, he's like, well, that makes me mad. And his friends are like, yo, if... If your wife is not responding to you, we are done for, like it's over for us. You need to come up with a, an edict uh, and a decree that Vashti actually can't come into your presence. He's taking his ball and he's going home. If you're not going to come when I call you, you can never be around me. And your royal queenhood will be passed to someone of greater worth than you. So he writes the edict. Boom. Now the search is on, bachelorette style, for a new queen. They bring in a bunch of virgins to the harem. One of them is Esther. She's beautiful, she's smart, she's doing the thing right, and she zooms up the charts. Like last episode, she gets the rose, she becomes queen. Now Mordecai, he loves her and he cares about her. So he's been hanging around the temple gate because that's where all the hot gossip happens in the ancient world. People talk, they do their business. Mordecai's got his ear to the ground. He finds out that two people want to kill the king. So he's like, hey Esther, two people want to kill the king. Esther's like, hey king, two people want to kill you. King checks it out, it's true, they kill the guys. They hang them on a tree, or they impale them. The word is translated either way. All we know is they died, and they're on public display. Gross. Now, Haman gets promoted to second in command, and Haman's like, I'm really awesome. Did you know I'm awesome? If I'm in your presence, I would like you to bow down and pretend that I am the king, which is not uncommon in the culture at the time. Everyone does this. Oh, Haman, you're so great. Thanks for being in our presence, except for Mordecai the Jew, because don't have other gods before me. Don't bow down and prostrate yourself to anyone except me. So Mordecai is still following these Jewish commands. Haman does not like this at all. He's so mad, in fact, that he's like, hey, king, there's this Jewish guy, and I really don't like him, so we should kill all the Jews. And the king's like, sounds good. Write it up. And he sends it out on horseback to the entire kingdom, which is giant, 137 provinces. 
Um, it's another reason I'm in this camp over here is that the Persian Empire was known to have a really good mail system in the fifth century BC. Who knew? Um, so they send it out, and they're like, "All right, on this day, 11 months from now, we're gonna kill all the Jews." And the Jews are understandably a little freaked out. Mordecai is freaked out. He tears his clothes, puts on sackcloth and ashes. He tells Esther, there's a problem. Go to your husband, the king. Fix it. She's like, I don't know. If I go in front of the king and he hasn't called me, then he could kill me. Mordecai's like, it doesn't really matter because you're all going to die anyway. Um, and she's like, all right, fine. So everybody fast. I'll fast. You fast. Me and my harem girls will fast. And then I'll go and I'll do the thing. I'll talk to the king. So he goes. She goes, talks to the king. Hey, king. Now, if he doesn't want her to be there, she's dead. But instead, he extends his golden scepter, and she's fine. Of course. Esther, great to see you. What's going on? Uh, come to dinner with me, she says. Okay, I'll come to dinner with you. Oh, bring Haman. All right. Uh, I, yeah, boo, man, boo, Haman. So he says, I'll give you everything up to half of my kingdom I'll give you if you ask for it. What do you want? And she's like, well, you know how you're at dinner with me now? And he's like, yeah. Let's run that back. Dinner tomorrow. And he's like, all right, great. Feast. Haman goes home. And he's like, oh my God, I am impressive. I was the only one invited to dinner with the king and the queen. And his wife's like, you know what? You're in like Flynn with the king. Now is a good time to kill Mordecai the Jew. Set up a 50 foot gallows and ask the king to hang him tomorrow. And Haman's like, that makes sense. Um, so he does. He sets up a giant gallows in front of his house. Like, I've, you know, we've got some nice landscaping. Some people have a basketball hoop. Haman has a 50-foot gallows. Um, that's how we do. So Haman's excited. Esther has asked if things could go well. That night, insomnia strikes the king. Did you know? This is just, this is free. I'll give you this for free right here. If you can't sleep, science suggests get out of your bed, go to another room, Sit down and read something dense. Not Harry Potter, not like a, maybe Tolstoy or like just history, whatever. Read something dense for 20 minutes and go back. Xerxes had it figured out 3,000 years ago. He didn't need some guy at Yale to tell him how to fall asleep. So he goes, he can't sleep. He's like, bring me the royal history books. And they're like, all right, man, we'll read them to you. They start reading them. And he hears about the time Mordecai saved his life and turned in those assassins, those would-be assassins who are still maybe dangling on the tree. Well, what did we do for this guy? Did we send him a fruit basket? Did we give him, you know, a gift card to whatever? No, we didn't do anything for him. And he's like, well, who's outside? Because at that very moment, Haman is so excited about asking to kill Mordecai that he's come in the middle of the night and he's waiting in the courtyard, just kind of like, oh, as soon as, they, as soon as they flip the sign to open, I'm going in there and I'm going to ask them to kill Mordecai the Jew. And so the king's like, who's out there? They're like, it's Haman. He's like, hey, Haman, what should we do for someone that the king wants to honor? And Haman's like, well, it's got to be me. So he lists this crazy demand, like, take the crown for, that a king has worn, a robe that the king has worn, put it on him, put him on a horse that the king has ridden on, and parade him through town saying, this is what will be done for the man the king delights to honor. What? I know we're going fast. Energy's high. Some of you are, like, freaking out. We're real close. Okay. So... So Haman takes Mordecai through town, saying, this is what will be done for the man the king delights to honor in his full king cosplay. And he knows it's a problem. He goes home, he tells his wife, the same one who's like, be a great idea to hang that guy. And she's like, oh wait, he's Jewish? Oh, you're, you're doomed. Look, why didn't you tell me that yesterday? Um, it doesn't matter. He gets rushed off. Remember, 
Feast number two, Esther was like, hey, we're having dinner. Let's run that back. Now it's time. They're at feast number two, and the king's like, all right, listen, I would love to have another dinner with you, but what, what do you really want? Up to half my kingdom, I'll give it to you. And she's like, listen, I've been thinking about it. And honestly, if you could just not kill me and my people, that would be great. King's freaked out. What? Who, who would do that? Well, this evil, vile accuser, Haman. That's right. And the king is like, he steps outside to, to take a breath because he needs to figure out what to do with Haman. Um, I think we all know where this is going. Uh, and so Haman's like, please, Esther, no. And he's like begging her. The king comes back in. He thinks that she's like being molested by Haman. He's like, you're going to die. They hang him. Haman, gone. Esther gets the keys to his house. She moves in, still has all his old clothes in the closet. The dog won't answer to her, but she's living in Haman's house. Top of the, top of the you know, kingdom, pecking order. Mordecai's with her. Great. One small problem. The edict has been issued to kill all the Jews. Uh, and in Persia, the edicts can't be revoked. So Esther's like, hey, king, can you, um, thanks for killing Haman, can you not kill me and my people still? And he's like, well, that's the thing about an unrevocable edict. They're unrevocable. Um, and so she talks to him, and she's like, all right, let's spitball here. What if you did another edict, but this time you said, all you Jews who are about to get killed, you can fight back if you want to. And he's like, it sounds great, send it. So Mordecai writes it up, gets his king's official seal, sends it out. You're not going to believe this. The Jews win. Uh, they kill all their enemies, and uh, then the book ends with Mordecai kind of in charge. Another reason that I think this is slightly true is that Mordecai, in the, the book ends, we think Mordecai maybe wrote it. Historically, that's kind of what people believe. The book ends with Mordecai was really powerful and in charge of a lot, and people really liked him. That's awesome. That's how I'd end a book if I wrote it. Okay, so that's Esther. You got it. Great. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that's fine. Okay, so now we're going to slow it down. So what we're going to do here, I would recommend reading the Bible this way in general. Take a look at the passage and just ask, what does it say? What does it say? None of what I just said was any interpretive uh, attempt at understanding what it means. That's step two, which we're about to do. And then step three, after you get to what does it mean, is what does it mean for me? What does it say? What does it mean? What does it mean for me? Uh, Ryan had to cancel his How to Read the Bible workshop. I just gave it to you in 30 seconds. You're welcome. <laughs> um, so we're going to talk about some nerd stuff. Can you? Yep. yep. Okay. Just a little nerd stuff, and then we'll get back to silly jokes and funny dances. Um, intertextual illusion. <laughs> um, this is basically the concept of bringing in a well-known piece of literature into your piece of literature so that the reader thinks about it through the lens of the well-known piece. So if I said, four score and seven years ago, Porky the Pig debuted for Looney Tunes cartoons, that would be true. I looked it up on the internet. It was the only thing that happened uh, 87 years ago that I could remember off the top of my head. And that's what four score and seven is, it's just 87. Um, now, the only reason I would write that is if I had like maybe some weird thesis on like American government and freedom vis-a-vis -vis, like golden age cartoon motif, um, which maybe like someone will write that paper. But for now, the point is you bring in this popular writing that everyone knows about and you take a chunk of that and use your writing and then they're thinking about both pieces. This is all over Esther. I'm not going to go through all of it, but I'm going to give you two because they're pretty crazy. So, Esther 1.1. 1, 1. 
the way the Hebrew is translated here, and I'm just going to say it, guys. I could have written down the Hebrew, learned how to pronounce it, and said it to you. And you'd be like, oh, that guy knows some Hebrew. I don't know any Hebrew, so we're not pretending here. Uh, I'm going to trust my sources. You trust them, too. If you want them, I'll, I'll email them to you. Uh, none of them are Wikipedia, which I guess is allowed now, but used to not be. Anyways, the construction translates roughly, it happened in the days of. Happened in the days of. Happens four times in Scripture, this exact construction. Happened in the days of. Genesis 14.1, Abraham. Ruth 1.1, Boaz. Isaiah 7.1, the actual Messiah. Each one of these times it happened in the days of was setting up in the middle of turmoil for Israel a messianic figure. Not necessarily the Messiah, except Isaiah 7.1, what up? But someone who would save or deliver Israel from their torment. Happens four times in the Bible. The author uses it here. Very intentional. The author wants you to see this as a work that introduces the messianic narrative or a redemptive narrative. Number two, Esther 2.1, after these things had happened. So this is a really weird construction that also appears only four times in the Bible, after these things had happened. And it's this weird way of setting something that doesn't have a time frame. Like normally you would say four years later or um, and then the next Monday. But this is a non-time-bound way of locating something within a group of uh, events after these things had happened. Uh, it only occurs four times. Genesis 15.1 and 12.1, both Abraham, one after he rescues Lot, one after his proving of his faith by being willing to sacrifice Isaac. The other, Kings 1.1, when Israel is promised that they will get a king, but then they don't really do super well with it. So again, the idea here is that the author is very intentionally bringing in this idea of a redemptive narrative now, we talked about these characters. This, this blew my mind. I hope it blows your mind. If, if it doesn't, that's fine. But just like, just be like, ooh, or like whatever sound you make when fireworks are going off will be fine. Um, so the king. Let me just read. I'm going to read this, how the king is described. The king is sitting on the throne of his kingdom. The riches of his glorious kingdom were on display. The honor of his majesty was evident to all, his excellent majesty. Who are they talking about? It sounds like the Lord our God. They're talking about Xerxes. Now, they know Xerxes isn't a model for God. The author here is trying to say Xerxes is playing a type of God for the point of the story. We got Haman. I'm not going to go super deep into it. There used to be a clock. I feel like... Fine. All right, we're fine. Great. So this... Oh, it's so good. It's going to blow your mind. All right. So the tribe of Benjamin... Saul, Israel's first king, why didn't he get to keep his kingship? Because he was unwilling to go to war with the Amalekites. He was unwilling to take action. And so, a phrase used only twice in the Bible, I'm going to take your royalty and give it to someone more worthy than you. Queen Vashti, I'm going to take your royalty and give it to someone more worthy than you, Esther. Saul, I'm going to take your royalty and give it to someone more worthy than you, David. But it doesn't stop there! Saul is a Benjamite. He was supposed to destroy the Amalekites. Esther, Benjamite. Haman, Amalekite. Centuries, this cosmic narrative. The Jews are supposed to destroy the Amalekites. They didn't. Esther takes action where Saul, generations ago, refused. Now, the reason we boo Haman, this is wild, 
there was a prophecy that the Amalekites would be wiped off of the earth. And it dates back to 13th century Spain. Jewish school children would clap erasers together to signify wiping Haman off the face of the earth. That noise became feet stomping, which just became general raucous. And now they take those things and they decorate them in Hebrew school so that they can spin them in temple when the story of Haman is read. Wild. If it's a 900-year-old Jewish tradition that involves booing in church, I'm here for it. Haman. Yes! All right. Now here, we'll get to the good stuff. Esther. All right. Esther was pleasing in the sight of the king, literally good in the eyes of the king. When does God use the word good? When something he's created for a particular purpose fits that purpose. Happens all the time in the book of Kings. Every time there's a king, it ends with, and the king was not good in the eyes of the Lord, or the king was good in the eyes of the Lord. Esther was good in the eyes of the king, who we have already seen is set up as a type of Lord. Esther 2.7, neither father nor mother. The only other time that's used, Melchizedek, one of Ryan's favorites. Esther was taken in by Mordecai. She was taken into the king's palace. She's meek. She's submissive, like the Lamb of God. Until she's not, until she's giving out edicts and telling the king, hey, what if we just murdered everyone who was trying to kill us first? And the king's like, do it. Jesus is coming back, not as a lamb, but as a lion. And Esther foreshadows that transformation from meekness to assertion. Hidden identity. Jesus, when he performed some of his earliest miracles, told people, don't tell anyone. Disciples, don't tell anyone. It's not my time. Esther. Don't tell anyone about your Judaism. Hide it until the appropriate time. She is foreshadowing a type of Jesus. I'm going to read Esther 4, just a piece of it. It's the part we all know. I'm legally obligated to say these lines. Um, so if you remember, Mordecai's distraught. Esther is distraught. And she says, listen, I can't go in front of the king because if I go and he doesn't want to see me, I'm dead. Mordecai sends back this answer. Don't think that because you're in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. If you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place, but you and your father's family will perish. And who knows but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. And Esther sent this reply, Go, gather all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my attendants will fast as you do. When this is done, I'll go to the king, even though it's against the law. And if I perish, I perish. So, the, the meat of Esther's messianic foreshadowing, I think, is in these couple of verses. It's not here, it's just before, but she's distraught. Check Twitter so I can stop crying. Okay. Did you know God cares about you? Amen. 
Amen. Jesus said, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I long to gather you under my wing. There is no absent sky, friend. There is a God of the universe. He knows your name. Click and pin, that'll help. It won't. All right, we're through the emotional part. Here we go. <laughs> What's wrong with me? I don't know. Um, Jesus does care about you, and Esther cared about her people. That's a big deal. Remember it. Um, supplication. So <sighs> Esther decides to fast. Now, it doesn't say fast and pray. I think it's a little weird. We can talk about it if we want to uh, another time that isn't now. Um, but it would be really dumb to fast without praying, given the entire history of the Jewish people, like they're related. So I think what's happening here is Esther is realizing that intense supplication is required if you're going to be obedient in a way that is sacrificial. And that's the last piece. She's obedient in a way that costs her something. Super easy to be obedient when it's like, go eat pizza. All right, I'll do it. Um, it's super hard when it costs you something. So Esther does this. She decides to go to the king, and then this reversal happens. And reversal, reversal from expectations, reversal from God's people being tormented to delivered, that is the redemptive narrative throughout the entire Old Testament into the New. It is God's story of creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. Throughout this book, if you want to study it, it's literary, like, super interesting, but a couple of them. Um, Haman wants honor. He's prideful. And the reversal happens, and now he's honoring Mordecai. Haman wants to kill Mordecai. The reversal happens. And now Haman is the one being impaled and or hanged. I guess not and or, just or. The king issues an edict to kill the Jews. He signs it with a signet ring, and it sends out through Haman. At the end of the book, the king issues an edict that the Jews can fight back with all their might, and the power of the living God signs it with a signet ring and sends it out through Mordecai. A full reversal from mourning to gladness, from from despair to triumph, because God is active. Now, the most famous thing about Esther, other than such a time as this, which is a good one, God doesn't show up in the book. The name God, the word God, nothing. Uh, there's not even any explicit practices. Even the fasting is like devoid of prayer. So the sense is, like, well, isn't this just a book about how people need to take matters into their own hands? Nah. It's really not. Um, Non-mention is not the same as absence, right? Um, if we don't mention God, we are highlighting that people need to do their part. You have to obey. But when you hear a story and your context is Judaism of all these crazy things happening, you just read the story and you're like, well, how could that happen except for God? Um, there is no other solution. Um, 
One, all the people are still being super Jewish. They're fasting. They're uh, not bowing before their superiors. They are um, known as people who are following God. Like uh, Haman's wife is like, oh, if he's Jewish, well then uh, it's over for you. The other thing is like, there's all these coincidences. Now, can I prove to you that these coincidences are the hand of the Lord, his sovereign guidance? No. But, like, gosh, the queen gets deposed just in time for Esther to be selected and rise up through the ranks. Uh, Mordecai just happens to hear about this murder plot, but then not get rewarded, which seems really weird. Uh, the king just happens to get insomnia. They happen to read the right books to him. Like, it's either totally fake, which is the main reason people on this side think it's, like, totally made up is because it's all coincidental, or the Lord is doing it. There's not really an in-between. Like, coincidences that stack and stack and stack stop being coincidences, and they start becoming miracles. Um, And that's what's happening here. The Lord is active just below the surface. You just have to peel back the layer. We're almost done. I gave everybody dice. I'm normally not an object lesson guy. I really have always appreciated uh, when Cole's around. Cole always does artistic and interesting things, and it's just never been my style. I was talking to Ryan about this. He joked. He was like, oh, bring a bunch of dice. And I was like, ha, 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 ha. And then, like, Wednesday, I was like, Amazon.com. Um, and you guys know how I know, how, how you know that I know. I paid the dollar extra to get the color dice. So... If you have the color you love, and you were like, oh, that's my favorite color. Well, that's providence. It's the hand of the Lord. Not a coincidence. Now listen, um, this is my favorite part of the whole story. Purim. Uh, Purim is the holiday that the Jews celebrated this week. It is the feast that they do in remembrance of this triumph, where they were about to be persecuted, and instead they win the day. Pur means lot. Haman, you know how he picked the day? He just shot dice and was like, all right, 11 months from now, we're going to kill all the Jews. What do you think, guys? And they're like, dice looks good, Haman. Send it. Um, if this really happened, wouldn't, wouldn't the Jews call it like the Feast of Esther? The Feast of Deliverance? Instead of naming it after the very thing that represents blind chance, they took the name dice And they have a freaking festival of dice to basically send up a giant Jewish middle finger to the idea of chance and fate. They're saying there is no chance. There's the hand of God active in the world around you, and that's it. Now, I'm not saying like every flap of every butterfly wing is predetermined. Like, calm down with that. There's no reason to think in Scripture that that's the case unless there is, in which case you're right and I'm wrong. It doesn't matter. What I'm saying is their understanding of, of, of this whole series of events. You know why Mordecai was so sure? The same reason Abraham was sure that, that there would be a sacrifice waiting for him because God promised, I'm going to create a people out of you and I'm not going to let you die. So if Esther, if you're not going to save us, God will. I know that. That's faith. So I, I gave you these dice. Two things. One, Right, I feel like very few of you are going to be in a situation where you need to sacrifice your lives to save mankind. Like, if you are, then just the, the Esther thing, like, just be obedient, do it. But most of us are not in that situation. So, what does it look like today for us to take the lessons of Esther? I got two for you. Um, one, I know that a lot of us feel like we're in spiritual exile. Either 
God sent us away or we sent ourselves away. We think we did something and we can't get back in his presence. Maybe it's just that we grew up in a church that's so emotional and so emotive that if you're not feeling it, God is not really with you. That's not true. And maybe some of us are in like shopping list Christianity where it's like, I get my eggs and do my laundry and have my quiet time and, you know, watch my show and read my Bible. And it's not meaningful. It feels like exile. You don't feel the Lord. He does not promise that you're going to feel him. The whole book of Esther happens and we don't see God's hand actively, but he's there. And so for, for those of you who feel like you're in spiritual exile, take a risk. Look through the annals of your history, like the, like the king, like Xerxes, and, and be willing to see where God has moved. And be willing to let that be enough for now, to trust that he moved. There was a time when I knew from the shadow of a doubt. That he loved me. That doesn't mean fake it. It just means you don't have to be bubbling over with like the fire of God in your face for him to be real. He has moved in your life and you know that. Lean on that. Trust in it. Ask him to show that to you. So, uh, Roll your dice sometime this week. You get an odd number. Spend five minutes. Think about a time when you knew for sure it wasn't a coincidence. You knew for sure it was God. And it doesn't mean like you're driving and it's starting to rain and someone pulls out and you can park close to the building. Like I've, I've been in a car with someone who's like, thank you, Jesus. I'm like, that's really cool that you're thanking Jesus. I... <laughs> but I don't think that, I mean, maybe, maybe it really is. I don't want it to mean it. Um, but like, a time you knew and lean into it. The other time is such a time as this. I got an email 10 days ago from a friend in Illinois. He's my kid's godfather. And uh, he said, hey, uh, take a look at this resume. He sent it to his entire network. It went out to like hundreds of people. Um, this is a friend of ours. She just graduated and she needs to get a job. Okay. Um, a full-time job in the area of her degree or else they will send her back to the Ukraine where she's from. Jeez. I don't know. I was just like, all right, I'll look at her resume. And I forwarded it to my boss and I just said, I sent him a Slack and I said, sent you an out of left field email. And he said... We'll hire her. We'll do anything in our power to keep someone from getting shipped back to Ukraine right now. So 10 days ago, I got the email. Four days ago, she got an offer letter. And now she's working on the paperwork. Now, it's not charity. Because such a time as this, she happens to be perfectly qualified for a job that we didn't even realize we needed. Our intern, who we thought was going to go full time, said, I'm actually moving on. I, I don't know, man. Maybe that's a coincidence. It seems like it's... Sure, not one. Um, that didn't cost me much. I just forwarded an email to my boss, who I know like cares about stuff. You can change someone's life, probably, or a bunch of someone's, or a few someone's. 
you're in a position probably right now where you could do something meaningful for someone else that would cost you something. Maybe your reputation, maybe some money, maybe some status, some sleep, I don't know. And, and that's fine if you're already looking for those opportunities, but if you're not, such time as this. God didn't call us out of slavery to sin to like hang out and play shuffleboard until we get to go to heaven. Like, that's cool and I love shuffleboard, but like, let's respond to his call. There aren't really very many stories in scripture where God calls someone that doesn't do anything with them. He uses them. He, he wrecks the kingdom of Satan with his emissaries to this world. We are supposed to be foreigners. We're supposed to be outcasts, like really weird people living in this a uh, very demented place. And I'm sort of glad that we're in a post-Christian society because there's no more, like, fakeness. Or it's at least going away. It's really abnormal now for people to just kind of be hanging on to the cultural threads. They mean it now. I think that's great. Let's, let's lean into that and be people of the light. So, the end. Um, if you roll your dice and you get something uh, even, think of a way. Just ask God. He might say, no, you're fine right now. Just whatever, hang out. But he might say, like, oh, yeah, um, I don't know. Move to Wyoming. Start a Christian cat farm. Um, <laughs> just me? Okay. Lord, thanks so much uh, for speaking to us through Esther. Thanks so much for the fact that you really do love us. You really do care. You know who we are. And you don't exile us. You invite us to be in your presence. Uh, you invite us to repent of our sins. I pray that we would take those invitations at face value. Not say no because we're scared that they're not real. This has been the City Beautiful Church podcast. To stay connected, follow us on social everywhere at City Beautiful CH. We hope you join us again soon.